0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Luke fourteen twelve through 24 He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But when he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, When the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled, the blind and lame. The servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. Still, there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be full. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ.
0: Thanks, Grace. So, um, put the attention back on, attention back on uh, Todd Teller, Pastor Todd, for a second. Uh, you can get a kiss, in, a kiss from the neck uh, from Todd anytime you want, but there's one other thing that, that Todd is known for uh, right up here, and that is uh, about half the time when the musicians do something amazing, uh, which we've almost come to expect, uh, he'll say, Nashville is not normal and uh, just remind us of how uh, much of a gift it is to live in a city that's so filled with music and talent and the hearts uh, and creativity that, that are behind it here. Um, but there's another thing that's pretty extraordinary about Nashville. Uh, music is related to it, and that, and that is that Nashville is a city that, 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 that orbits around a party. Just about anywhere uh, you go, you'll find a party nearby. by. Uh, you go down Broadway. They're, they're, you know, choose your your honky tonk. Pick one if that's your thing. Uh, there are festivals uh, that, that happen every single year throughout Nashville. Here's just a small sampling of of some of the more familiar ones: the CMA Fest, the Bonnaroo Fest, the Tomato Fest, the Beer Fest, the Whiskey Fest, Comedy Fest, and of course the Hot Chicken Fest. Uh, there are there are scores of other ones as well that you can enjoy. Uh, uh, every year, throughout the year. Uh, every season of the year, there are nonprofit banquets all over the place, which uh, are, of course, opportunities to, to give back to uh, organizations that are pouring into uh, uh, the marginalized and hurting and under resourced communities of Nashville. But those are also typically opportunities to have a feast with people that you love, people that you care about. Uh, another reality about our city is that uh, there are concerts, uh, galore here. Uh, in one single night, it's within the realm of possibility for Taylor Swift to be playing at the stadium, Mumford and Sons to be playing at Bridgestone. Uh, and then at, at the Skirmerhorn, uh, a symphony or perhaps Johnny Swim backed by the Christ Presbyterian choir. Uh, you might go to the Ryman and hear the Indigo girls play on that same, Knight, Ben Rector at the Ascend Amphitheater, Scott Mulvihill and Jesse Isley at Third and Lindsley, uh, Cannery Ballroom, Tom Douglas and Friends at the Bluebird. I mean, you can go on. There's music all over the place. And it's the bachelorette uh, capital of the world Nashville is, yay us. You know, Christ Pres. one of the things that we set out to do uh, a few years ago as a church is to make sure that our church is also orbiting around a party uh, as frequently as we can. And, of course, we have the big ones uh, like Party on the Lawn, Community Christmas, which is the the huge, glorious after party that happens annually in December after Messiah. Uh, Virtually every ministry of our church has a series of parties and gatherings and feasts, throughout the year, it might surprise you that the reason behind why we do this as a church has a lot less to do with the city in which we live and a lot more to do with the God that we serve. The kingdom of God is a banquet. It's a banquet, and it's a a unique kind of banquet, a unique kind of feast, a unique kind of fest that I'd like to uh, talk about under a couple of different headings today. First, it's a it's a disruptive feast, in some ways, and second, it's a glorious one. So disruptive and glorious, and uh, I'm sparing you the third point because it's a holiday weekend. So, a disruptive feast. So there is a, a passage that comp- that comes right before the passage, and this is where Jesus. Teach us to the same group of people, if somebody invites you to their party or to their banquet, don't sit at table number one, sit at table number 60. And maybe somebody will invite you to table number 10. But but don't presume to to sit at a table uh, where you might have to be disinvited because it's been reserved for somebody else. And the, the point there is, approach a party or a feast or you know, something that's being done for the community, not as if you're entitled to it, but as a gracious, uh, thankful guest who's just glad to have a seat anywhere. So, take the low seat as your starting point. But then He turns in this passage to teaching about when you are the host. When you host a dinner, Jesus says… Include the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Include people who can't repay you. Include people who aren't getting aren't used to getting invitations from people. And that's when the air gets a little bit awkward. And one of the guests, who it says is reclining luxur- luxuriously, uh, decides that he will break the silence. Right. This is a, 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 a what's being pictured here is a a feast, a party that's filled with A-listers, networkers, and and then Jesus drops this sort of, um, you know, Debbie Downer wah-wah, where are all the poor people, where are the blind, where are the lame, where are the crippled, where are the people who can't repay you? And so one man breaks the awkward silence, he raises a glass, and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Fist pound, Jesus, come on, I'm with you. And Jesus says, hmm, not so fast. Not so fast. You know, this man who's raising a glass to break the awkward silence in, in many ways is doing the same thing the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well did, when Jesus pointed out that the man she is now with is not her husband, and in fact, she's been with five others before. We don't know all the circumstances around that. She may have been immoral, or she may have been widowed multiple times, or men may have left her repeatedly because she was infertile. We don't know exactly why, but what we do know is that it was a sore spot for her. And so, like the man here, she does a, a bit of diversionary God talk with Jesus. Ah, oh, you're talking about my heart. Let's talk theology and doctrine. How about that, John Calvin? How about that Jonathan Edwards and that Martin Luther? And she says to Jesus, I perceive, sir, that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and your fathers say worship in Jerusalem. What what do you think? And this man here is doing the same thing. Diversionary God talk. Blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to rescue the moment. And Jesus says it's not time to rescue the moment just yet. Let me make you just a little bit more uncomfortable before I give you the glorious punchline. You know, Jesus says, I'm not finished yet, and then He tells a parable, and He switches from speaking in the third person when you have a party to the first person. Let me tell you what happens when I have a party. Let me tell you about my feasts. Let me tell you about the, the banquet of God. It starts like any good party with planning well ahead of time, their version of an Evite save-the-date invitation. In verse 16, a man gave a great banquet and invited many. And the RSVPs started flooding in, yes, 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 I'll be there, plus one, we'll be there. And then the day arrives, and the yes list slowly throughout the day starts to dwindle. Have you ever experienced this? You've planned maybe for a couple of months a feast, and you've carefully selected your invitation list, and you've gotten all these enthusiastic yeses, and you've prepared for the 20 people who said yes. You've set the table, you've lit the candles, you've prepared the meal, you've purchased the groceries, you've done it all. And then you get 12 people last minute out of the 20 saying, oh, so sorry, something came up. Feeling a little tired tonight, got this, that, or the other. And it's a party of eight with 12 empty seats. That's what's being described here. And what Jesus says is okay, then, let's invite people who can't repay. Because the initial guest list are those who can repay. In other words, those who have resources and therefore who have options and therefore who might be tempted to jump at something a little bit more sexy if it comes along at the last minute and easily bail. Ah, they'll be all right. They'll have a good time. More food for other, other people. And of course, it's unacceptable to Jesus. And He says, look, that, that's, that's a complete disregard and disrespect for the host. You know, they 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 build this whole evening around your presence and then you peace out at the last minute now there are legitimate last minute regrets we all know this if there's an illness in the family or somebody has the flu or your neighbor has an emergency and and, and you're right there and this is your opportunity to care for them you know you call the host and say look I, my neighbor has a need you get kidnapped you you can't go and rare opportunities. I mean, there's grace for rare opportunities. One of those came up for us a couple of years ago. I've been wanting to go see Bruce Springsteen live ever since I was in high school, and it was impossible to get tickets until one day, on the day of, a friend of ours in the music industry said, got a couple of extra tickets, do you want them? I I said, well, before I say yes, let me call these people that we're supposed to be having dinner with tonight. But what I said to them was, look, we're all in with dinner if it's important that we do it tonight. But at the same time, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity has come my way. And if we can go to Springsteen tonight, we will, but but, but you're first. And, and we would have foregone the tickets. Uh, and they said, sure, we'll reschedule. That's totally fine if you're being honest with your host. But if you tell a lie, that's not totally fine. If you give a lame excuse like, you know, you you, you, you got to get your hair cut or something like that. And what Jesus is saying is these are lame excuses. These aren't the legitimate ones. These aren't the once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And, and his, his upsetness has a lot less to do with their change of mind than it does with the condition of their hearts toward him and toward his feast. His grief and anger is because they are so cavalier about the cost that the host is paid to make them room at the table and they show up 1.7 times per month and call themselves regular attenders of his feast. See, what's going on here is these people that, that, that he's talking about, they, they have the ability to repay and so they Keep their options open and think that's all right. That's often something that goes along with wealth. You think you're entitled to peace out on people because you're maybe more special than you used to be when you didn't have wealth. It's not cool. It's not cool at all. Especially when it's God's banquet. His pronouncement in verse 24, it's, it's a little scary. None of the cavalier dropouts, Jesus says, will taste my banquet. This is God's banquet. What's going on here? These are people for whom a feast with God sounds less delicious than a lesser option. Their appetites have been distorted. They've developed a hunger for finite, temporary things and lost their hunger for the infinite, eternal one. He's become less delicious, less interesting, less fascinating, less of a wonderful mystery to them than maybe he had once been. It's as if Jesus is saying, you are so ready and so eager to feast on the good things that are in the world that you're content to just snack on God when it's convenient. You know, when I was a, in youth ministry, we made a crazy decision. I've only done it once in my life. I hope I never have to do it again. We did this thing called a regressive dinner. You know what a progressive dinner is? It's when you start, okay, we're going to start with the salad and appetizers at one house, and then we're all going to Uh, you know, move to another place for, you know, the main course and then to another place, a third place for the dessert. It's a progressive dinner. So we decided to do something cute, do a regressive dinner. We're going to start with dessert. And the main course for that night was steak. And nobody wanted it by the time we got to it because we'd all filled up on fat and salt and flour. It's what's happening here. You're filling up on some delicious things that I do endorse. I don't forbid them. Buying a field, admiring the field that you bought, buying an ox and, or a group of oxen and inspecting them to make sure they're quality. Your wife, of course I endorse those things. I've given you those things. I've given you your work. I've given you your property. I've given you your, your loved ones. Those are my gifts to you. But you're taking these good things and you're turning them into your ultimate thing. You're turning them into your true north. And you've lost your appetite for me. I have become less delicious to you than the things that I've gifted to you by my grace. This is a regressive dinner of the soul, you could say. And Things like a field, things like work, really important things that God's given us, right? Land, place to live, place to play, place to have leisure, Work, uh, that's the first great commission in the Bible. Early chapters of Genesis, go Adam and Eve and tend my garden, cultivate the earth, make culture. Family, it's one of the three, uh, you know, uh, institutions or entities that God has established for the flourishing of the human race, church, government, and family. So, he's not dissing these things, but what he's doing is he's he's saying similar things that C.S. Lewis would later say in Mere Christianity, that God invented a human being in the same way that a human being invents an engine, an engine will only thrive and flourish and run on gas. You try to put something else in there, it's just going to break down. The same thing is true about a human being. A human being will only run and flourish on God. God is the fuel. Everything else is just window dressing and armor all on the tires. And he goes on, Lewis does, to say, that is why it is just no good to ask God to make us happy in our own way or on our own terms without bothering about Him or religion. And then he says, God cannot, cannot, not will not, can't give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it is not there. An echo it is of Augustine. You've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If if the nuclear family becomes your nucleus and God gets pushed out to the periphery of your nuclear family and asked to revolve around your nuclear family, guess what? You're going to lose both. If your work becomes your nucleus, your six oxen that you need to go inspect becomes your nucleus and God is is asked to revolve around and and be subject to your work commitments, guess what? You're going to lose your joy in both. Same thing with things like property and leisure. You know, Jesus is saying to, to those who've dropped out of his feast, you are filling your spirits on secondary things, and, and as a result, you're never going to taste my banquet. That's not a punitive statement. That's, a, that's, that's the consequences of your own choice. You're filling up on, on fat and salt and flour, and so you're not going to be left for any, with any appetite for, for the prime rib when it's put in front of you. You know, the application is not difficult. All we need to do is ask ourselves the question, in what ways are we, am I, feasting on leisure, work, and family in such a way that I start to snack on God instead of feasting on Him, that I start to to expect God to to orbit around my leisure, to orbit around my family, to orbit around my work instead of the other way around. You ever ever wondered what what it would be like if, if, you know, the planet Earth took over the the position of the sun and said, you know, sun, you... the only place you have left in this solar system is to become a planet because it's all revolving around me. It's all going to blow. You know, The magnetic you know, realities are going to go into chaos, and, and, and the whole solar system is, is not going to work unless it's all revolving around the sun, its source of light, its source of heat and energy and so on. And so, you know, we've got to ask ourselves the hard question. We've got to allow Jesus to say, but Jesus said to Scott Sauls. Or, but Jesus said to contemporary American people who identify with Jesus Christ. What is the reason for the rise of the nuns, those who don't identify with faith? What is the reason why church attendance, which used to be four times a month, is now 1.7? times a month, considered regular attendance? Why every single year does church attendance around at least our part of the world go down another 1%? Why is there so much biblical illiteracy? It's because we've lost appetite for God, maybe, and and gained appetite for other lesser things? What is our version of a regressive dinner? I've got a theory here. I think that the the, the greatest vulnerability in Jesus' teaching here It could be anything, it could be that we're workaholics, that that we're too fixated on our oxen, Uh, it it could be that, you know, that we're landaholics, that we're too fixated on our leisure and, you know, building a second whatever, or it could be that we've put the nuclear family in the nucleus and expected it to bear the weight and the freight of our significance. Has it ever struck you that that the world's two most premier teachers on marriage and family were two unmarried men, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. There's some, there's some message in there that, that maybe we are called upon to consider. Here's what I think is the greatest threat to the American evangelical church right now. Parents who are willing to follow their own children away from God's banquet instead of leading their own children toward it. Parents who are happy to follow their own children away from God's banquet rather than leading them toward it. Well, they, they say they don't like church. They say that they're, they're bored when we try to read the Bible around dinner or, you know, they, they get so distracted when, when we try to teach them to pray and we shouldn't force it. It should, should come out of their hearts. How long are you going to wait before it starts coming out of their hearts? how long are you going to wait? Are you going to wait until you have a man-child with money, or are you going to be happy with that? You know, investing oodles. When they say they're bored with studying, you don't say, oh, I just wait till your heart feels it, do you? No, you say, study. When they say, I don't want to do the sprints and lift the weights that my coach is saying I need to do, it's uncomfortable. Well, you need to do it. I don't want to rehearse my lines for the play. Well, I don't want to practice my skills. We well, need to do it. Anyway, do it. You're not getting up from this table. Practice makes perfect. Why would we be so emotionally invested in those things, which are all good things? Why would we be so emotionally invested in raising kids who are spectacular scholars, artists, athletes, and money makers, but have unspectacular souls. Food for thought. Can I also say one thing, just to reassure parents who have made their best effort? Sometimes, outcomes are not the point here. The point here is what are you after, and what is your appetite, and sometimes our hearts break over our kids because our appetite is for nothing but they, that they follow Christ. We'd be happy if they live in a box as long as they're living there with Jesus. Much rather have that than a grown-up man-child with money as my child, right? There are a lot of parents who've got the, the orbit and the appetites properly placed, and their children end up like one of the children in Luke 15, the parable there. Runs away as a prodigal. Great father. Or stays home but resents the father. Great parenting, rough kids. And then you've got some rough parenting and great kids. Look, we can't explain it. And that's not the point. We're not talking about outcomes and there's not like, if you follow this formula and then this is going to be the outcome with, with your family life. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, where are our hearts? What do we really want for the long haul for our kids? Are we so accustomed to the secondhand smoke of the culture in which we live that we could take it or leave it that they have strong, solid souls when they grow up as long as they're rich and have power and some eye candy at their side? Okay, so that's the disruptive part. Now it gets fun. It's a glorious feast. Maybe the reason why they, maybe we, can be so cavalier toward God's feast is that we have no idea what we're missing. I love that Richie Sessions said last week that Jesus' name means forgiveness. You know what the Father's name means? Festivity. Festivity. Feast-ivity, feasting activity. Maybe we just don't know it's there because we haven't tasted it yet. Maybe we're like the the child that that C.S. Lewis talks about, playing around in a a mud puddle and and desiring to stay there, even though he's been invited to enjoy a holiday at the ocean. Jesus is describing his own hospitality here. God throws the best party ever. That's the point. That's really the overriding point, overarching point of this whole thing. It's a repeat theme throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament feasts include, but are not limited to, the feast of unleavened bread, of first fruits, of weeks, feast of trumpets, feast of tabernacles, day of atonement, feast of the Passover. Then you go to the New Testament, first public miracle Jesus performs, turning water into really great wine at a party after the other wine ran out, feeding 5,000 people, feeding 4,000 people. Acts chapter 2, you see every single day believers are gathering together, breaking bread together in their own homes with glad and sincere hearts. The most famous parable that Jesus ever preached was about a father who lavishes his two lost, fiercely lost sons and tries to woo them back by throwing a party in their honor and inviting the whole community and slaughtering the the biggest cow he can find. The best prime rib, most succulent prime rib that he can prepare. The Lord's Supper, or the agape feast, is given as a regular, repetitious act for the people of God, like manna from heaven was for the Old Testament Israelites. The end of time, we're going to be greeted at a marriage feast. That's going to be our first experience in glory, is what, what the Bible calls the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we'll be the bride and he'll be the groom. Every time we approach this table, every time one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. There's festivity there. The name of God the Father is party. Anyone can get in on it, too. There are only two conditions. You've come to a place where you recognize you can't pay. And that you are an outsider who's been graciously grafted in. I love this song by Toby Keith. I think it's a great description of the kingdom of heaven. It's called I Love This Bar. Here's some of the lyrics. We've got winners, we've got losers, chain smokers, and boozers. We've got yuppies, we've got bikers, we've got thirsty hitchhikers, and the girls next door dress up like movie stars. I love this bar. We got cowboys, we got truckers, broken-hearted fools, and suckers we got hustlers and fighters, early birds and all-nighters. The veterans talk about their battle scars. I love this bar. I've seen short skirts, got high techs, blue-collar boys and rednecks. we got lovers, lots of lookers, and I've even seen dancing girls and hookers. It's my kind of place. No cover charge. Come as you are. I love this bar. There's a difference with Jesus. There is a cover charge. And it's this. Your pride. You have to give it up. You have to let go of your pride, your independence, your self-sufficiency, and trade it in for an admission of need and for empty hands. That is the price of your ticket to his table, is empty hands and a hungry heart. Even just a little bit of hunger gets you a place at the table. There has to be the admission of completely empty hands. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welch preacher, used to ask people very regularly when he met them, are you a Christian? And, and, he, and he says, when I, there's, there are two different answers that, that I would get from people who, who would identify as Christian. The first answer is, you know, I'm trying really hard to be a Christian. And Lloyd-Jones would say, well, that person hasn't yet tasted what it means to, to feast at the table of God. And then the second person answers the question, are you a Christian with this? Yes, I am. Can you believe it? You know, it has been said that when we get to heaven, there will be three surprises. All the people that are there that we didn't think would be, all the people who aren't there that we thought would be, and that were there. There's a humility about it. You know, this weekend we commemorate the courage and sacrifice of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who fought for racial justice and healing. Uh, his, his, you know, the theology that undergirded uh, that vision that King had was, uh, was his robust understanding of the image of God and how every single person, every single race, every single tribe and tongue has Dignity because of the image of God and therefore ought to be treated with dignity and respect. But this past week, as I was reading again uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which which is one of his masterpieces, uh, my mind went back even further in history to the origins of the hymn that we're going to close with today Amazing Grace. And I would encourage you to think carefully about this story being the reality behind that hymn. You know, John Newton writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Why would he use such a fierce word like wretch? Isn't that being a little bit melodramatic? He didn't think so, because what Christ had saved him from was the life of a slave trader, The life of a man who thought that violence and ownership of one tribe of the human race by another was perfectly fine. And the poor treatment that went with it, the oppression, the lack of opportunity, somewhere along the way he was given a taste of the Feast of God, turned toward Christ in repentance, By faith and heaven through a party. And then he started to get into the ear of another man named William Wilberforce, member of parliament, who singularly in parliament by himself stood up against all forms of slavery and fought for abolition and eventually won. And, And then the one thing that kept him going, Wilberforce was John Newton whispering in his ear, this is a just cause. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. But somewhere along the way, there was a shift in appetite for John Newton. His appetite for profiting, his appetite for power diminished and was put in its proper place. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with having power, but it was put in its proper place of revolving around the sun of God's feast. And he came to feast on God and snack on the world instead of the other way around. He was given a taste of the deliciousness of Jesus, who is our ultimate and true leisure. He is our rest, our burden bearer, who is the one who does and fulfills all the work that's required of us, and who is our long-term nuclear family. The bridegroom to the bride, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. Jesus does more than prepare a feast. This is the last thing I'm going to say before we go to the Lord's Supper. He does more. This is what makes the feast of God so unique. He doesn't just prepare it. He doesn't just put it on the table and set it for us. He is the feast. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of of me. Our inclusion here required his exclusion. Our fullness required him becoming empty. Him taking us in required him to be cast out and and sent out the city gates to the highways and byways. Anyone can get in on this. How? An appetite and empty hands. Any appetite and empty hands. Thanks be to God. Let's close in prayer together as pastors and elders and deacons and deaconesses and other servers come to the tables to serve. Let's pray. This is from Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, In your light do we see light. Amen.